in our series on the church, the glorious body of Christ. And today we're still working on the purpose of the church. And as for review, we said there's one purpose works out in three ways, three E's. So who can tell us what that is? Okay. You got two out of three, that's 67%. Exalt. And all of that falls under glorifying God. We glorify God by exalting Him. We talked about how that's both individual and corporate worship. We glorify God through edifying one another. We glorify God through evangelism. Now we can use many words to describe what we're talking about today. We can call it edifying ministering to one another, serving one another, loving one another. Those could all be ways you could describe it. Uh, But maybe the best way to describe it is just that it is discipleship. You know, in Jesus' words in Matthew 18, sorry, Matthew 28, he says, Go therefore into all the world, making disciples of all nations. And then he continues, and he says, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So discipleship is not just leading someone to Christ. Discipleship involves our, really our last two purposes, evangelism and edification. And so here, this is just flowing out. How do we fulfill the Great Commission? Well, edification. Now, I'll just say I hate overstatements, overselling. If you buy this product, your life will be changed forever. If you do this diet, you'll look like, and they show someone that I'll never look like. All these overstatements. But I don't think I'm overstating this to say if we can come to grasp what the Bible, what its vision is for what edification looks like, I think it could really revolutionize revolutionize an individual and a church. Because um, really it's going to show us it's not just a Sunday morning activity, it's a way of life that we would live differently. And so on your outline, uh, you should see several questions. I'm highly suspicious that we'll get through all of them today. But we will do our best. First, what is edifying? And let's turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Colossians 1, 28. And here Paul says it somewhat succinctly. Ty, could you read that for us when you're there? Uh, so here Paul's talking about his ministry. And he starts off talking about two things. We proclaim Christ, and then he says it in two ways, warning and teaching. Or I think you might have had slightly different words, Ty. Or was it warning and teaching? Him we proclaim? Yeah, warning. Warning and teaching, okay. Warning everyone and teaching. So warning everyone and teaching everyone is how Paul does his ministry. Now that might seem like an odd way of talking Because we're often told, look, we need to be positive. We need to be encouraging people, which is true. We do need to do those things. But Paul says his ministry is also one of warning, warning people of sin, warning people of false teaching, even having to rebuke people. Um, But then there's also the positive side of teaching. And again, that's what the Great Commission is, to go teach to people, observe all that I've commanded you. Now notice he says... Him we proclaim, and we've noted this throughout various times, that proclaiming Christ is not just focusing on the Gospels, 
all of Scripture ultimately is about Him. So if we understand Scripture, then teaching Christ is teaching all of it with focus on how it ties to Christ. Now notice in these verses, one verse, how many times does he say everyone or every man? Three times. You know, everything he does, he does for everyone. It's not like, okay, well, there's this group of people who are wanting to grow and there's this discipleship process for them. But then there's these other Christians. They're just kind of your more normal Christians. I have a friend who's a pastor and he said one time he was having a meeting and one of the people raised their hands and said, Pastor, we're just really not like you. We're not going to read our Bible every day. and We're, not, we're just not going to do all this stuff. And he tried to convey to them, well, maybe you don't need to read all the books that I read, and maybe you don't need to do some of the aspects that I do, but really, something like reading your Bible, maybe you're not going to do it every day, but that's, that's what we all do. It's not like there's this, okay, well, there's the leaders, they should be growing, but then there's the everyday Christian, the normal Christian, they're saved, they're good. No, every Christian, everyone, every time he says something, he teaches everyone, he warns everyone, he wants everyone to be mature in Christ. And that really gets to the goal. What is the goal that Paul has for his ministry? That everyone mature. Mature. Yeah, the word is perfect or complete. It's the idea that you've reached the target. This is what everyone is aiming for. So what does that mean, to be mature in Christ? Or complete in Christ? Or perfect in Christ? All synonyms for being Okay, so that's one aspect of intellectual. Mature is able to understand what you believe, why you believe it. That's good. What are other maybe examples of being mature, complete in Christ? Recognizing your sin for what it is. Okay. Yeah. Ooh, the Apostle Paul said, um, I think it was where it says that even when the Gentiles see your good works, then they glorify God. So if you are not just complete and mature in Christ, they're going to see that you emulate and give glory to God, not you. Yeah, so if you're a mature Christian, what are they seeing through you? Christ. But, you know, we're becoming more like him. So that we could say, well, you want to, I mean, Paul says this, imitate me so that you can imitate Christ. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement. But as we become mature, people, we should be able to say on the clear things, not everything. But, hey, you want to know what Christ would live like? Well, look at what I'm doing. No, no, I don't feel very confident to say that very often, but that's what we should be aiming for. We should be able to say, you know, we're not perfect, but if you want to see what a church should look like, come down to 8th and Travis. And again, we may not be very confident to say that, but we should. That's what we should be aiming, that we want, hey, you want to know what Christ looks like. Look at our life. Look at our family. Look at our church. Look at the way if Christ worked at Shepherd Air Force Base, this is what he would look, work like. Come see how I do my job. If Christ was a stay-at-home mom, this is what he would do. If Christ was a college student, this is what he would look like in his classes and as he related to people on campus. Or if he worked for Teachers Credit Union. Or whatever we do. 
This is what Christ would look like. So one last thing, and then we'll ask some questions. Notice the way we become more like Christ is by proclaiming Christ. That's the way Paul started. We proclaim Christ so that we can become mature. And so now what are some maybe other goals? I don't mean these like these are bad things, but that can subtly in the life of a church start to take the emphasis. They start to take more priority than molding people into Christ-likeness. It's not that they've denied that. I'm not trying to say these are like heretical churches, but good churches, and slowly over time, they just kind of slowly, they're, what they're aiming at gets slightly diverted off from the main purpose of edification. In this area, I see a lot of um, big youth activities where you're more worried about the kids having fun and getting as many kids as you can than actually dealing with the heart of the kids and the teens and confronting their sin. Okay, yeah, so could we say event attendance? And you know, we can get so focused on the event, how many people came, how much fun did they have? Then we go, well, what was the purpose of all of them showing up? Why would we, I mean, there's nothing wrong. Why did we want them to have fun here? Uh, That's another thing where it kind of falls off, too, because you can have these events, and then somebody will be saved, and then that's the end. There's no, there's no discipleship after that. Yeah. Okay, so. Be next on those event attendance, and then, yeah. I don't know, number of people saved in our church. You know that that's your goal. It's not to disciple people, but just to get as many people yeah, so again, that's not bad. We're going to, maybe next week, maybe a couple weeks, focus. That's one of our goals. That's, the, that's part of discipleship. But we can get off that one arrow should be aiming towards growing them in Christ. And we're so focused on fun, exciting, saved that we forget. Well, look, once they're saved, we need, should be aiming them towards Christ's likeness. Sometimes I think that can be even more dangerous because if they're not discipled and they're Christians, they're saved and they're Christians, but they look like the world, that's, what good are they? You know, what good are they for Christ if they, if they look like the world? Yeah, because then the world says, well, why would I want to be a Christian? Because back to all the things you said, I work with this guy at Shepherd Air Force Base, and he's worse than the guys who say there aren't Christians. I wouldn't want to be a Christian. Because <laughs> um, they, we should people see us go well that's what christ is like i don't want to be like that yeah so you raise a good point what are other things that are good maybe even similar but slightly the compass is off north okay can you expand on that Yeah, I mean, there's there's still a lot of universities, even public universities, that have Old Testament, New Testament departments. Those professors know a lot. They probably know more than I do in regards to theology and doctrine and what the church has believed throughout time. That doesn't mean they're like Christ at all. Uh, I mean, you can pick up the right books and you can learn all that you, you could articulate. And Satan's really good at theology. 
But that doesn't mean you're like Christ at all. You know, now, having events, you know, we can't lead people to Christ if we don't spend time with them, and you could think that's the best of events. So that's a good thing. Learning doctrine can be a good thing, but we can make the way that should be pointing to the goal become the goal. Does that make sense? And so we got to be careful, not just, okay, well, we got to get together and learn theology, not just have events, but why are we doing these things? What is the long-term goal? Paul says, 1 Timothy 1, the goal of our instruction is love. No, not the goal of our instruction is that you know all this. You know, there's an aim. You know, what is love? Well, Christ is love. You know, the goal is maturity in Christ-likeness. Um, and, you know, in this we can also, our goal can just be, well, we have events, how many people showed up? That, we're all about having the programs because that's what we do. Well, why do we have the programs? Truth Trackers is great. Sunday School is great. But you know, we don't have to have Sunday School. We don't have to have Truth Trackers. Why do we do them? Are we using them to grow? All right, well, so next thing, who edifies? And so let's stay in the same book, but flip over maybe a page. Colossians 3.16. Shauna, could you read that? Chris, could you turn to Ephesians 4, 11 through 12? And then we'll all turn to 1 Corinthians 12 in a minute. But, Shauna, if you could read Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Now, this is not as noticeable in English, but... The words teaching and admonishing are literally the exact same word and same form, like they're both participles, as what Paul says in Colossians 1.28. I, mean, I don't really know why they change it because they're the same words. It says teaching and warning in 1.28.3.16, same. They could say teaching and warning. And the point is, who is called to this ministry of teaching and warning? All believers. You know, how do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Well, not just Paul, though that's his ministry. In chapter 3, he's talking to everyone, and they are to teach and admonish everyone. We see this even in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. You can probably turn there pretty quickly. It's just back a few pages. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. All right, so here in Ephesians 4... He gave all these leaders, but who does it say is to do the work of ministry? The yeah, the saints. What is the role of the leaders? Equipping. Equipping. So, I've used this analogy before. Often when we think of Christian ministry, we use this analogy, though we maybe wouldn't articulate it. We think of boxing. So how does boxing work? Well, in boxing, one guy or a gal now trains really hard, he works, he gets in shape, the event is set up, and then what does everyone else do? They come, they pay, they cheer him on, yeah, way to go, that's our boxer. A lot of people think of Christian ministry like that, and the pastor or the leaders, they're the boxers, they go get training, they go work hard, and our job is to support them, tell people to come listen to their preaching, or come listen to them, give an evangelistic talk. We cheer them on. I think a better, and if you don't like sports, and this might not be a good analogy at all, um, but another better sports analogy is football, real football, American football, where <laughs> the is a team. And what does the coach do? The coach tells all the players what to do. 
Now, it doesn't mean the coach then just sits on the bench and goes, well, look at them. No, the coach works hard throughout the week. He's watching game tape. He's seeing what the other team's going to do. He prepares the team. He gets, Actually, the coach often works harder preparing the team so that then they can go play the game. And you know, that works out in the church with the pastors and the leaders. What do we do? We are the coaches who prepare everyone else so that you, not up in the stands watching, but you go and you carry out the plays. Or if you like something else, you could say this is the difference between a solo and an orchestra. Not one person, we go all watch him, but the leaders are like the conductor who leads everyone else in playing, if music is a better analogy for you than sports. But either way, the point is ministry, who does edifying, is not the pastor or church leader, deacon, Sunday school teacher. It's me, whoever me is, or you, whoever you are. It's all of us are called to ministry. And we see this really played out in 1 Corinthians 12. So if you would turn there. And we could have a whole sermon on this, but we'll just try and go through it quickly. In this, we see three wrong-headed approaches. First, there's people who have an inferiority complex. And just for sake of ease, I'm going to have people read whole sections if they don't mind. Stephanie, could you read 12, 12 through 20? All right, so you know the Eeyores of the world. They always go around moaning, saying how worthless they are. No one ever notices them. Oh, life is so bad. Yet the truth is in the church, no one is worthless at all. You know, Paul is arguing here that since all spiritual gifts came from the same Holy Spirit due to God's grace, thus there's no one who's better or worse in a church or anyone who's more or less holy due to the gift God has given them. And so Paul uses this analogy of a human body, that though you know we have one body, we have various parts, hands, eyes, feet, stomach, and more. And similarly, the church is one body, but various members in it. And then he uses this general idea of a church body and examines a human body to give particulars. You know, So the foot can't be upset. Well, no one sees me. I'm stuffed in socks all day. I get all sticky. The hands, it's unfair. They get the smelly lotions. They get to shake people's hands. It's not fair. No, that's ridiculous. The hand and feet are both part of the body and they're both needed. Likewise, the ear can't think, well, I'm not an eye. I'm not that important. I'm unnecessary. You know, and then Paul kind of gets a little silly. He says, well, what if we were a whole ear? How would we see? Or what if we were a whole eye? How would we ear? You know, in contrast to all this, he's saying God 
planned a human body so that the various parts function differently, but for the same goal, for the same essential nature of one body. And they're all essential. So thus you can't reduce any human body to one part or function, and you can't reduce the church like that. You know, the church, to be more specific, Wichita Falls Baptist Church, needs you. You know, you, whoever you are, provide something that no one else can provide. And so we should all delight in the gifts God has given us and wholeheartedly use them for the benefit of the others in our assembly. So reflecting on this, how can we be tempted to think that we're really not that important to the life of the church? <laughs> they could chop me off. I might blow up someday. <laughs> How can we be tempted to think that, you know, we're just really not that important? Okay. I was going to say your, your introvertness takes over. It's like I'm not an extrovert. So I'm not outspoken, so I can't be used. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not every part gets acknowledged for its job. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, until I get sick, I don't really think, wow, my throat feels so good today. You know, like, but once I have a sore throat, then I remember. You know, there are activities and responsibilities within the church that, huh, even, you know, like when your house is clean, you don't really. What's that like? And we can think that in church, oh, I'm not that important. So there's some people who are inferiority complex. But then there's people on the other end of the spectrum. And that's what he talks about in verses 21 through 26. Their superiority. Oh, I'm the most important thing here. David, could you read 21 through 26 for us? Yeah, I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresent, unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So here he's continuing this analogy and that certain parts of it are thinking, look, I don't need these others. You know, this would be people today. You know, I can get along just fine without the church. I don't need it. It's, I'm fine. I'm growing by myself. It's just me and Jesus. But Paul is here arguing that quite to the contrary, the parts of the body that we think are unneeded are indispensable. You know, you're never able to remove them and still be healthy and vibrant in your life either physically or spiritually in the church. You know, God has so composed our human bodies and his spiritual body, the church, that he will even honor the unhonorable parts, it says. And so the purpose is that the body will not be divided. And so I think this is important because sometimes 
what we do in our churches is we make sure everyone's just like us. But what we're doing is hurting ourselves. So, you know, some people in churches are very budget conscious. Hey, we need to be making sure that we have money for all this, which is good. They're very good stewards. But then other people are visionaries. Hey, I know we don't have the money, but if we build it, they will come. And the budget people can get upset with the visionary people. And the visionary people can get upset with the budget people. They're slowing us down. They're going to ruin us. But instead, we should be thankful for both. Hey, we need to be wise. We can't just spend money that we don't have. Hey, we need to be trusting God and pushing forward. We need both. Or, you know, some people are really excited about children's ministry. Some people are really excited about teaching. We can't be like, oh, why are we... Or some people are excited about meals. Oh, why are we wasting money on meals and getting together? That's a waste. We should be buying books. People are, we shouldn't be buying books. We should be spending more time at the park. Well, we should be thankful for both. We need people who are thinkers. We need people who are fellowshippers. And we should, as much as possible, try to do both. But then he says, literally, that we should be anxious for one another. That we should be concerned for one another. He talks about in verse 26, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. What he's saying is, literally, we should be such a body that what causes anxiety amongst us is what's going on with others, not just what's going on with me. You know, if I hear of a blizzard right now in Canada, I might think, oh, that's bad. Probably goes out my day. But they're really concerned about it. You know, but when they, maybe a few years ago, heard about the drought here, they weren't that concerned. But we should be so changed in the church that if one person is hurting, we're all hurting. Not like, well, we feel bad for them, but, you know, back to the body. If our toe hurts, our hand doesn't just go, ah, <laughs> it's not me. No, we're a unified group that their joy is our joy. Their sorrow is our sorrow. And, you know, we're revolutionized from self-centered thinking to other people think thinking. And so here it's challenging us, you know, are we seeing the need for others? Not just we don't need anyone else, but... Where are we helping? Where are we thinking about others? And lastly, he concludes in verses 27 through 31 about some, I entitled them, egalitarian complex Christians. Sarah, could you read that 27 through 31? Uh, so some will take the idea, well, look, we're all one body. We're all the same. We're all equal. So we shouldn't have any leaders. But that pulse ends by saying, well, that wasn't my point. My point was not that there's not structure in the body. It's that within that structure, being a leader doesn't make you more important. In fact, he doesn't talk here, but the servant is greater than all, Jesus says. So... Just because we're all of equal importance and equal worth doesn't mean we all have equal position or even authority. And he goes here to talk about all the various roles in a church that God has appointed. 
You know, every member matters and there are leaders in the church. And this isn't just a man-made idea that people come up with so we can get some authority. It's right here in God's word. So some reflecting questions. If we're honest, often people think who really matters most is the pastor. Why, why are we prone to think that, that the pastor is really the most important person? Okay. In a traditional sense of how you view a corporation or a business, they're the they're the representative CEO of that organization. Okay. Okay, yes. I mean, we don't necessarily cast stones, but we might cast some boulders at those churches now. <laughs> Wait, who knows whether that should be good, but that can give a wrong impression. It doesn't always, but can give this impression, well, that's who really matters here. So what can we do to, or maybe what should I be doing that I'm not doing, to remind ourselves that, look, every member matters. Maybe we have different roles. Maybe we have different positions. But in God's eyes, it's not like, well, you know, he's the one that matters. No, every person, every member ministry is what we should be aiming for. So how can we, or should we, if we're not? Be reminding ourselves of that, encouraging that truth. Without a congregation, there's no, there's no reason to preach. Okay, there you go. There's no one in the seats, you know, talking to talking to the wall. So even your your body being in that chair is really ministering back to to the pastor. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right, so just to kind of summarize this section, this is a little bit of a softball question, but who's called to ministry? You know, I've talked about that. Are you called to the ministry? Everyone. Yeah, everyone. Um, now, why is it helpful first to define what ministry is? So, when you hear that phrase like called to ministry, you think of like God called me to be a pastor, God called me to missions, God called me to you know work with you. You don't think of it as you think of it as like a very specific thing, not something that we are all as Christians compelled to do. Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes the phrase takes on a loaded meaning. Mm-hmm. It also takes on the meaning that, oh, God's getting his elite squad together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, go ahead, sir. Well, when you were talking about how 
Now, we may not think of this, but how are we all already ministering, whether we realize it or not? I have seven children. <laughs> okay, there you go. So that's kind of what I'm aiming, but let's tease that out. What does that mean? How are we all already involved in ministry? So that's a specific way that works out. But generally, how are we all already ministering, whether poorly or well? Just your interactions with people on a daily basis. If they know that you're a Christian, then you are either ministering them in a way or you are setting a bad example. Yeah. You know, it's impossible to... Okay, well, here's my role as a Christian in ministry. I'm going to leave this here. And then I'm going to go over here and do the other part of my life. You know, whenever you drive your car, go to work, go to the sports field, go to class, study. Whenever your classmate says, how are you doing? How you respond? When they say they're not doing well, either your lack of answer or your answer, you're saying something about life. You're ministering. You could be ministering poorly. You could give them really bad counsel. Or you could give them really good counsel. But ministry is all of life. We all are ministering right now. The question we have to ask is, well, hmm, the way I'm talking to my friends or not talking to them, the way I'm engaging people or not engaging them, is this the way Christ wants me to be doing that? And being more purposeful to realize, look, we are already doing this. Are we doing it in a way that honors Him? So, Specifically, and this, you don't have to answer this. This is a self-reflective question. How has God specifically gifted you so that you could serve this body and help us grow and mature and become more like Christ? Now, it might be you don't even know what that gift is now. You know, it might be that you think, oh, I'm gifted in this way, and then a need arises, and you step in, and you fill it, and you go, oh, I never knew I was good at this. I actually do well at this ministry. Um, but there's all kinds of things. And we only have 10 minutes left. We're not going to get through the rest. So let's just kind of camp out here. Um, 